Hello, and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. Today on the podcast, we're talking about telehealth with Doug Morse, CEO of Hanson Family Hospital in Iowa, and Rebecca Marsh, Senior Vice President of Advisory Services at Enthrive. They discuss how increased interest in telehealth during the COVID-19 pandemic is creating opportunities for rural health systems. That's coming up after Rich and Chad go beyond the news. Hello, this is Rich Daly, senior writer and editor for HFMA. And hi, this is Chad Mulvaney, a policy director for HFMA. Thanks for joining us on the Beyond the News segment of the podcast, where we take a quick look at the significance of recent healthcare finance news developments. Among major healthcare finance news developments recently was the Monday, July 27th release of a Senate legislative package providing new COVID-19 relief. The bill, backed by Republicans, is starkly different than a package passed in May along party lines by House Democrats. One top-line difference is a smaller addition in the Senate bill to the Provider Relief Fund. The Senate would add $25 billion, while the House bill would add $100 billion. So, Chad, what should hospital finance folks know about this top-line number? Yeah. And so, you know, the the 25 billion, obviously anything else you can put in the provider relief fund, that's that's a step in the right direction. But certainly what we're hearing from members and as we think about how long this this public health emergency is going to last, how long there's probably going to be a need for high impact funding. Um, certainly, I think the hundred billion dollar number is certainly more appropriate. And when you think about the scale of some of the estimates that we've seen from AHA from Kaufman Hall, from others, HFMA's back of the envelope that has even for a relatively limited duration pandemic, the need for anywhere between 200 to 300 billion dollars to cover lost revenue and also increased expenses related to COVID. And then also sort of making sure that even non-COVID care is, is provided in a safe manner. The, the additional 25 billion dollars is certainly, you know, it, it's nice, but it's insufficient. I see. And uh, along those lines, HHS has continued to update guidance of provider relief funds. Was there anything in recent updates that you'd highlight among those? Yeah, there were a couple of things that came out last week, so the week of the the 21st. You know, first, we've all been kind of wondering when HHS was going to provide details on what it wanted in terms of reporting requirements. And so they announced last week that by August 17th, they will provide us with details on what the reporting requirements will be. And they will also provide us with access to the reporting system or the portal that we're going to be reporting through on August 1st. And certainly we know that recipients will have within 45 days of the end of the calendar year 2020 to report on their expenditures for the period through or the period ending December 31st. And so we'll, we'll, we'll look forward to that. Because my guess is, is that just given kind of how the, the level of detail that HHS has provided thus far has been inadequate. And so hopefully they will address some of that in this call. And certainly we'll, we'll, we'll stay tuned to see what comes out of that. The other thing that I would highlight through the, the updates from the past week was that HHS clarified that while parent organizations can reallocate provider relief funds or general distribution relief funds to their subsidiaries, the target distribution funds, so the high impact funds or the the rural funds have to stay with the provider that they were originally targeted to, which I think is an important clarification as a lot of organizations, a lot of systems sort of look at what their, their, their entities have received and how they think about sort of recognizing that revenue. 
Well, thanks for the insights on this today. And uh, obviously, thanks for keeping us up to speed. Rich, always great talking with you. My pleasure. Of course, you can also keep up with the latest uh, developments related to the COVID-19 Provider Assistance Funds on our daily news site at hfma.org forward slash news. Thanks for listening. Are you a business partner looking to connect with HFMA members? Share your thought leadership, network with our membership, sponsor events, and raise your brand awareness in unique and meaningful ways. For more information and to discover all the opportunities available, please visit us at hfma.org opportunities. A funny thing happens lately when I talk with people about telehealth. First, they gush about how much they love it, and then they say, I don't want to say the pandemic was a good thing. For the record, I've yet to speak to anyone who thinks it was, but the new attention on telehealth is a great example of good things coming from living in this reality. Today, I'm talking with Doug Morse, CEO of Hanson Family Hospital, a rural critical access hospital in central Iowa, about what telehealth has meant in his organization. He's joined by Rebecca Marsh, Senior Vice President of Advisory Services at NThrive. Rural hospitals were hit especially hard by the COVID-19 pandemic, although there has been some financial assistance available. Tell me how things are at Hanson right now, where you stand as far as what's open, what's not, you know, how are things looking in your area and how are things looking at your hospital? There's no doubt it is not business as usual because of the COVID pandemic. In fact, right now we have an incident command process still underway. We have a COVID hotline, separate testing process, and our revenues have returned to about 75 to 80% normal, having been down to a low of about 40% normal. But at this stage in the process, there's no question we have significant operational and safety restrictions in place. So we have not yet returned to normal. And as we like to describe it, typically in a rural hospital, you need to walk and chew gum at the same time. You need to try to keep people healthy, but you only get paid when people are in your doors. Now we're needing to walk, chew gum, and juggle because we have to keep people healthy. We're only paid when we see folks who are sick and deal with COVID and non-COVID. So it's definitely a unique period for our institution and everywhere else in the heart of Iowa. From our view, this entire story is about rural facilities adapting to a new environment. And and really then, what is a rural hospital to do? So we're looking at it that telehealth is a means to put clinical talent and data at the right place in the right time. And for us, telehealth is an opportunity. In a rural area, of course, we're all familiar with the challenges in rural areas with perhaps economic stagnation and difficulty recruiting and attracting. So telehealth is that means to really provide care in a rural area, lower cost structure, and freeze up beds perhaps in a larger referral center in times of crisis like COVID, but in general puts care at the right place at the right time. From the patient's perspective, what we've seen and certainly others have probably experienced is less time off work and and less some of the hassle and friction that goes with coming to a healthcare facility. So in our particular case, in in a rural community, Telehealth really has been that means to bring things to the community and the region that wouldn't be there otherwise. So it's really an opportunity in spite of all the difficulties. 
Absolutely. And and one of the things that, that we have noticed just from a trending perspective is that residents in rural communities tend to be older and sicker. They have worse health outcomes and tend to be affected by chronic disease at a much higher rate than their urban counterparts. No doubt with an aged population, using some of these tools has provided care in the pandemic and to set the stage. Specific examples, think of the difficulties for folks in long-term care facilities who are quarantined for long periods of time. Along comes the opportunity for telehealth, phone, even some organization-to-organization relationships that allowed us to do care with some of those very vulnerable folks in this period, which we're still in the middle of, quite frankly. Using those kinds of tools, matching it to the population, has really made a difference compared to what would have been available even what, 5, 10, 12, 15 years ago. We also discussed the substantial opportunities of physician-to-physician telehealth, In some rural areas, patients need to wait a few months and travel a long distance to see specialists, but in many cases, telehealth allows them to get the care they need at their hometown hospital. The exciting part of this is it brings the patient into their own care via a portal or having that information. And and as you said, we can coordinate and link to another facility so that we're not either lagging the information or it's not with them, which is not only better of course, for the patient experience, but ultimately drives costs out of the system. So it, it, it really seems like if we and as we arrange these resources and organize around a patient condition across multiple sites, we can, in fact, bring more services to a rural community, not less. And that tends to feed an economic engine in a rural community and leads to greater broad-based economic development, and good things happen. That ultimately is the story about, from my perspective, telehealth, as we mentioned, is this idea of adapting to the new world. Here's an opportunity to not only benefit the patient, the organization, and the community, if we can invest and arrange these resources in the right way, in the right time. Absolutely. And I think also if I put on my personal hat and take off my professional hat, for patients that have underlying conditions that are not significant, that can be handled easily and quickly because they already know what their sign or symptom is and how they may have treated it in the past. It allows for that quicker care model to address it at a lower cost and to get them what they need. And Doug, I know you mentioned the pharmacy and and being able to validate prescriptions and monitor prescriptions. So that falls into that type of category of really being able to to quickly address, you know, what is the immediate sign or symptom? Does it need or qualify for an actual visit or can it be handled in a telehealth manner with the appropriate provider? So it's, it's exciting when you think about it from that perspective and, and the cost savings that it could drive. Well, and with what is now obviously economic concerns for everyone, at least for the foreseeable future, this idea of allowing people to continue to go to work and not have to take time off and the pressures it creates on daycare and schedules, alleviating that alone, good things happen. And, and that's where we've seen some of that immediately move to telehealth, kind of getting that direction as quickly as possible can make a material difference in people's lives in a rural community and make a difference for the community itself. 
It's clear there are some significant opportunities to telehealth in rural communities, but we can't ignore the challenges. We'll touch on those when we continue our conversation after this quick word. If you're looking to take the next step in your career, turn to HFMA's online job bank. Search open positions, create a profile, and make your resume available to companies seeking qualified candidates. Start your search now at hfma.org slash job bank. What are some of the challenges as things stand today as we record on July 22nd, 2020? I'll have a shot at that first. Some of the challenges around this that that we've seen, and I I won't lead with reimbursement. I'll make that number two. But the first one is, is, you know, around adoption and organizing still around the patient condition. By that, I mean, we want to still make sure these tools are all part of the larger patient flow experience. And so that'll be a challenge internally that we can organize ourselves around these new tools for those who take advantage of these new tools. Second one is reimbursement. Obviously, this will require investment. It seems to me there's a strong case to be made for return on investment when we talk about right care in the right place. The broadband and technical limitations continue to be very real. It's part of every rural community's conversation, right? Having broadband capability is sort of the electricity or phone lines of years ago, and it's going to be a necessary condition, uh, those investments one way or another. Uh, and then, uh, I think we mentioned it earlier, licensure. Really, the, the liberating part I believe we saw in the last few months is some of these waivers around previous requirements so that we could innovate when needed. And to the degree we can continue with that kind of innovation and really model about what we've learned the last four months, I think that'll help us overcome the challenges. It will be unfortunate if these remain roadblocks that actually take us backwards, not forward on this, when one considers the cost savings, the possible growth to a rural community. So from my two cents, I'm hopeful that payers and and all of us actors in the healthcare system can find a way to overcome the reimbursement, the broadband, the licensure, so that this becomes an ingrained part of how we meet needs, because it's clearly where people want to go. At least that's my view as of this point in July, given the changing nature of everything. July 22nd at, at 4.42 p.m. Central. <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting you bring up the broadband infrastructure because the American Medical Informatics Association actually wrote a letter back in 2018 addressing some of the broadband access issues for the rural health community, indicating that it was basically a social determinant of health. And here we are, it's, it's 2020, and we're still talking about that same challenge. So. You know, I completely agree. There's no quick and dirty, easy fix to addressing it, but it's a real issue. And if we are going to move forward with providing telehealth care, we have to not only think about the the mechanism and the means of doing that, and if we have patients that are jumping on public Wi-Fi just to get video access, is that Wi-Fi connection secure or not? you know, which becomes a risk, 
but then also what is the quality of the, the speed of their connection if, if they're unable to do that. And that could obviously be detrimental to any type of, of doctor visit that requires video to actually um, see or assess the patient's condition. I do know, though, that there are some toolkits and resources available where there has been an initiative in the industry to provide programs around addressing that particular topic. Um, so there's funding and there's grants that are specific to rural health in, in an online library that can be accessed. So, you know, I personally hope that we see more focus on the importance of that and that that need is addressed so that we can be innovative to your point and think about how do we, how can we achieve and deliver quality care at a lower cost utilizing telehealth, but proactively address this roadblock or this challenge now so that we're not talking about it two years from now. It seems like access is especially a a challenge now where I was talking to somebody the other day and she was telling me a lot of the patients from her facility will go to libraries or schools to get their Wi-Fi and those things aren't open right now. Erica, just one more challenge that I think is worth noting is the ability for not only rural hospitals, but just providers in general to keep current and understand the complexity of all the telehealth rules and regulations that exist, not only for professional billing, but for hospital billing as well. They're very complex and they're very detailed. So that presents an option when you're trying to ensure that you capture every potential dollar that's on the table. And if you don't report something the correct way, either with the the appropriate HCPCS code or the modifier or the condition code or the location of service, all of that can create an edit, can create a denial, and it can create dollars that the facility could have collected had they understood what the regulation was really was really requiring. And then also just the variability across payers where Medicare, Medicaid, and your commercial payers could differ in what they want and what they require and being able to have the bandwidth and the resources and the skill set to keep current with that. Another thing in rural areas that, that we have seen is this idea of being willing to make mindful collaborations with others. And by that, I mean, at Hanson Family Hospital, you know, years of history with Mercy One and a referral center kind of relationship, which brings resources and willingness. I'm blessed to work in a community that's been forward thinking, and those have been deliberate decision points. And Thrive, as we've talked about, with everything you just heard, the expertise that's added there. The other piece of the formula that I think is important for our experience in our small town, it might be relevant to others, is that willingness to go out and make collaborations and reach partnerships in different ways and rearrange the resources. And we hear it in this conversation, helping us get to telehealth. We see it clinically through systems. We see it through relationships. And those are universal principles that could apply as we redefine what our facilities look like now that COVID has presented us with this situation, i.e., I guess we could call it opportunity, but either way, it's a chance to adapt one way or another. That seems like a great place to end things on a positive note. Thank you both so much for joining me, for sharing your thoughts and expertise. This is a story that we're going to be paying attention to for a long time, and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how things evolve. 
Thank, Thank you, you for much. having Thank us. Thank you for your time. Enjoyed it. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. The final two days of our digital annual conference are coming up soon, and we have some amazing speakers, so be sure to register for that event at hfma.org. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. And as always, if you have any questions or ideas about what you'd like to hear, you can reach out to our team at podcast at hfma.org.